Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the July issue, Matthew Gavin Frank meditated on his experience aboard an amateur sub back in February. Its narrative arc is focused on Frank's hesitance to climb in and concludes with a dizzyingly lyrical account of the otherworldly creatures he glimpsed at 2,000 feet below sea level. It's one of those classic Harper stories that is timeless, blending reporting with elements of history, philosophy, and science. But last week, it became timely in the worst way. I spoke with Frank about how his feelings about his voyage in a submersible built by Carl Stanley, a friend of Ocean Gate's CEO Stockton Rush, and the tragedy have opened up strange new meanings. So uh, I will just as a preamble, I will say that um, I typically don't like to record podcasts in advance because, you know, four years of Trump, everything was changing nonstop. And, you know, I didn't want to do an episode where it was like something big happened and uh, it wasn't discussed. And I am going on book leave starting in July. I'm going to be working on a book about David Cronenberg through the lens of Carl Jung, which I hinted at in this fucking first podcast I did with you. And I just wanted to get everything out of the way before I left. And uh, lo and behold, this thing that is absolutely not, you know, it was just like a classic Harper story. And then it turns out to be exactly on the news in the worst way possible. So keeping in mind that neither of us went to school for journalism and we are not uh, technical experts on Soviet manufacturing, what has the past week been like for you? Because, you know, a lot of the story is about your anxiety, about getting on Carl's sub and then having other people dismiss those fears. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. Um, (laughs) Who we? Yeah, I, I feel like I could best respond to that question by making sound effects. Um, <laughs> hooey. Yeah. Um, no, shit, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still parsing it out and um, probably will be for a while. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. still working through it because it's still so fresh and surprising. Um, yeah. I'm now pissed at myself for actually going down on Carl's sub. And my mom is pissed at me all over again. Um, (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's been a lot of emotion, um, like actual unexpected crying. (laughs) And and yeah, I feel a lot of, if I'm meandering, it's because I feel like my feelings are, like I, I feel a lot of complicated, mournful, elegiac kind of gratitude um yeah like in the face of of this news which is still so fresh um i've been taking a lot of stock and reminding myself holy shit i dove to a depth of 2000 feet in a home-built amateur Mm -hmm. submersible off the coast of honduras in an uncertified uninsured sub and I remain haunted, um, Violet, <laughs> by yeah. the, by the experience, and and like the haunting is, is it's just made more acute and um, bewildering, and, and and like frankly nauseating um, yeah. in the face of of you know the fate of the Titan. Um, like I, the day the article was to be published, and and I felt sick, like I felt nauseous, and yeah. I I feel as if maybe I shouldn't still be here. 
And I've started asking, you know, why I still am. Um, yeah. And so uh, the day the article dro- uh, dropped on, on June 20th, I, you know, was going back and forth on WhatsApp with with Carl Stanley um, and like speaking about the Titans initial disappearance before we, you know, really knew anything. Carl immediately knew, like, and he like texted, he like um, texted me back. I am 99% sure they imploded. Mm-hmm. Um, and he told me that back on June 20th, the morning of yeah. June 20th. And oddly enough, he told me this and he said, I can't talk now because he told me this as he was prepping his own submersible, Idabel, um, for yet another 2000 foot dive. Like he gets yeah. this news and yep. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go down to 2000 feet again and think it over. Yeah. Um, and so as we know now that, you know, the, the experimental or uncertified, or as some like to call it, the uncertifiable submersible community is, is such a small one. And, and Carl was, was a friend of Stockton Rush's. Mm-hmm. And um, as was uh, recently reported yesterday in the New York Times, um, mm-hmm. Carl in, in April of 2019 was part of that four-person crew. And Rush was among them who, who dove on the Titan down to like like a record breaking like Titanic level depth of like over twelve thousand feet off the mm-hmm. Bahamian coast, um, and that's when Carl like rang the alarm bell um, about the safety yeah. of of the sub. Um, and I, I know we all recall because it's so fresh uh, that the news cycle was reporting on um, the noises um, that oh my the God, stonar detected, right? And so like. Everybody knew, um, everybody reporting on it knew that that didn't mean anything. Um, you know, that it, it, the, the reporting was, it was oddly lurid and they were deliberately withholding oh, information because yeah. there was no way that banging was coming from people banging on the inside of the sub, but they wanted oh readers to think that, right? I mean, no, I know. And there was like on CNN, there was like, like a countdown clock for when the air right. ran out. Yeah. Like it was yeah. so lurid. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. And so, like, when I heard this, like, I, too, was, like, you know, I'm a human being, so I, you know, was was suggestible. And so I, I you know, messaged Carl again. And, and I was like, hey, um, did you see the news on these noises and things like that? And his response was, like, succinct and final, like a two-word text. They imploded. Um, he, wrote, he wrote back to me. And so... So yeah, I, I I guess I was in the aftermath of the article's um, publication. I I was just desperately hoping that the Titan would be found intact and the five people on board would be rescued. Um, but of course, based on what Carl was telling me, I was afraid that they would not be. And I guess I'm still wondering if this fear. Um, I mean, like so many other fears, um, is not one that should be overcome. I, I, I mean, come on, do, do we do we really need to sink to such depths to slake our wonder um, or to prove our wealth, um, actual or or metaphorical? So, so yeah, I've been thinking through a lot of things this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I mean, the thing that it, it's understood that fear is a. Um, it's an evolutionary device. It's a protective device because humans have forethought and being afraid of things prevents our deaths. And, you know, you were extremely afraid because, you know, for full transparency, you know, you were already writing this book about the DIY submersible community and you sent us a chapter and the response was, you know, in order to make this like a Harper story, you should ride in Carl's sub. 
and throughout the story, I mean, there are a lot of people you you encounter in the amateur submersible community that are quoted in the article um, that I'm sure that you've just met during your research who have had accidents and mechanical failures. We all do this to a certain extent, you know, like every time we get in the car, every time we get on an airplane, whatever, we sublimate the possibility of disaster. Has this experience changed how you understand that part of our psyche? Who? Um, yeah, um, I, uh, I, I suppose that, yeah, it can be said that many in the um, in in the personal submersible community, yeah, definitely downplay the dangers. Um, they they often seem to get lost in the fabricating of all of the exhaustive safety precautions that they must take um, mm-hmm. to mitigate, but never eradicate, of course, um, the encompassing danger and. And I think because they're they're doing um, all of these things and taking all of these precautions and lending their minds and bodies to inventing and engineering and then physically building and welding and sealing and gluing and fire treating the parts for these safety measures, um, that's what many of them seem to focus on. Um, all of the safety precautions, because it, what's, it, that's what's, what takes up their time and their energy. And, and sometimes, if, if only rhetorically, like many seem to confuse that for actual encompassing safety and actual encompassing security, when in reality, the encompassing thing is the danger in the, the, literal, the literal form of the ocean um, yeah. and the fickleness and power of the deep. Um, because so, you could just get knocked, the submersible could get knocked by a, a shark, and then you're fucked. It could get knocked by a shark, and in the case of the Titan, <laughs> I mean, the the currents in that area are notorious. Um, like, on the personal submersibles page on Facebook, where a lot of mm-hmm. these, like, yeah, amateur um, submersible enthusiasts, you know, um, kind of geek out, you know, they were saying, like, I can't, I can't believe, you know, that... This little sub is down there because the cross currents are such a bugger and 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 all of this and so and so in that email that that Carl that Carl sent to, to Stockton Rush like um you know with regard to the mentality and psyche I guess of, of this community um mm-hmm. one of the parts not published in the New York Times included you know Carl telling Rush um you know we are like minded when it comes to judging how far things can safely be pushed. And, uh, you know, safely wasn't in quotation marks, but, you know, this is coming from Carl Stanley, who uh, told me the story of his first sub, um, you know, that he built before Idabel. And he was obsessed with pushing it um, not only to, but past its limits. And so he actually pushed it past its depth rating um, and I, th- I think I wrote about this in the article briefly. Um, he pushed it past its depth rating and permanently deformed the hull because the oh water God. pressure, the sort of which caused the Titan to implode in one twentieth of a second, um, is what ca- caused you know this this permanent deformation of the hull of Carl's first submersible, and he barely escaped with his life because of this. So, um, but why why did he why did he choose to do that? Um, because was it, was it a purely sort of like, um, I'm, you know, I I don't want to be like, this guy's a daredevil. He's reckless. Was it literally just to see 
for for future improvements or do you know? Um, I don't think he meant to permanently deform the hall. Um, no. <laughs> and, so I, and, I, and so I think the way that Carl like um, operates with this sort of thing is, yeah, I think he likes to test things out um, structurally to see what he might have to do next time. But there's yeah. more to it than that, um, mm-hmm. because in doing so, he's risking his own life. Um, And he is and has been um, the sort of person to just push the limits um, of, you know, what the human body and mind could and should take. Like, um, again, in the article, like he used to scale these, these radio, radio towers, um, barefoot, you know, like thousand foot tall radio towers and just kind of hang out up there and, and all of this. So he's still the sort of person who on the Idabel, the, the submersible I went down on, he completely eschewed communication systems for his sub. Um, believing that if something went wrong at the depths to which we were to dive, like no one would be able to um, find us and get to us anyway. Um, and so, and he's not entirely wrong about that, but still recognizing that and then like going so far as to eschew um, <laughs> communication systems is is something else. And so I guess with regards yeah. to Psyche, um, like lots of these submersible enthusiasts I've spoken to, like can trace back their enthusiasms to a place of, of childlike wonder, you know, um, which is, which is often lovely, but this wonder evolves. And, and as time marches on, like it often dovetails with a testing of one's limits like this. And so, and so death is always lurking, but, but these are guys are like, well, we're building our steel hulls against this or something. I mean, it's like, it's like some futile and, but thoroughly human stamp to do something extraordinary, um, to be forever, to, for better or for worse, leave behind the legacy, ever compelled as we are to try and like preserve the, the innately fleeting. And so, um, the act of diving, I think for some in the, in the submersible community seems like both like a test and a proof of the innate structural inadequacies, you know, of these kinds of, of, of repositories. Um, all of our tools reveal ourselves to be faulty eventually, right? Like, especially yeah. those we, we submerse into the deep sea in an area known for its unpredictable currents. Um, so I, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, all I know is that my psyche isn't really built to handle such things. Um, and isn't really driven to risk my life testing such limits. And to be fair, like, I mean, many in the amateur submersible community, like while they're a risky bunch, like they don't, they don't approach like Carl's and Stockton Rush's like levels of extremity. And so I guess like one thing that I've learned is, is that the human psyche isn't monolithic, right? But like comprised of like a seething cocktail of, of mini psyches. Um, yeah. But after this experience, I'm, yeah, I'm probably just more mystified by the human psyche than anything else. No, I'm no, I mean, again, it, it's so um, it's like you said, it's not just, it's this curiosity that we all have and it's not, it's not a bad thing to be curious. Um, and science requires uh, testing. You have a hypothesis, you test it, you see if it fails, but this is like a whole you know, you're, you're putting yourself on the line to, yeah. to see. And again, and this is not a criticism. This is just stating the facts. And so it's, it does raise so many questions about 
yeah, what, what are, what, you know, the classic question, what do I do with my life? How do I, mean, I go about living? What is a good life? <laughs> I mean, part of me is even a little critical of it in a way. Um, too, because I mean, there is a malign quality to like uh, this certain and particular breed of wonder. Um, mm. Because I, I also think that, God, how to put this? Like, um, it bumps up against like a sort of like sense of, of privilege and right and almost like a, a, a claiming of ownership. Like I have the right to explore you know, the deep in this particular way. And and I think I mentioned this when I spoke to you before, like, I mean, some of the rhetoric, like, does bump against, you know, um, you know, colonial aspects and mm-hmm. um, issues of, of manifest destiny and, and, and all of this, like, um, you know, exploring, you know, these last frontiers. And, and there is a malign quality to that sort of that sort of impulse, like historically and presently. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know, uh, in the case of the Titan, that is extremely heightened uh, because of the amount of money that they could, you know, that was required to just board the sub, mm-hmm. and it didn't. I mean, again, do you know other people in the amateur submersibles communities who knew Stockton, or is you? It's just only through Carl. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, at, at this point, like only through Carl, like a lot of people knew of him, but Carl is the only one, you know, like to whom I spoke, who who actually like went down with him in the Titan and and yeah. shared that incredible and intense uh, intimacy. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to be, yeah, critical of of you know like all of this kind of wonder blanketly because a lot of it is is kind of beautiful. Um, of course, too. yeah. So I'm, again, like, I'm, I'm working through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, continuing with anxiety for a bit, yeah. could do this all day. Yeah. Um, you know, the disappearance of the Titan was very much, you know, a collective anxiety. And you get to see how different people express that feeling. As opposed to a personal anxiety, right? This is, this is we're all in this together, right? So... How has that influenced your understanding of like mass feeling and, you know, just like this collective anxiety, the countdown clock? So fucked up. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I mean, come on, come on, Sienna. I know. But hey, but it was effective. I mean, it generated generated like a rabid um, viewership watching it with bated breath. So it's it's interesting thinking about this question. You know, um, you know, you know, in the ass end of the uh, pandemic, having just you know collectively and and yes, like endured that collective trauma. um, Yes. I really, I'm so disappointed. I really thought we were going to come out the back end of the pandemic, you know, being more generous and nice <laughs> to each other, but it's the fucking opposite. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knew? There's something about the human psyche, I guess, um, <laughs> that uh, surprised me. But um, the Titan disaster really seemed to to tap into and fuse, like, I guess, many of our like greatest fearful hits. <laughs> I mean, you know, we got claustrophobia, we got asphyxiation, yes. we have drowning, yes. we we have the the nightmare of, of being lost and spinning out of control um, into a world that isn't quite our own. Um, 
They have extreme, extreme isolation. And the ways in which the story was reported, as you said, stitched it to that time clock. Um, the countdown until they ran out of air. And so, of course, we all became so keenly aware of the passage of time. Um, yes. Hours ticking away in our own lives too, right? I mean, it's it's downright stress-inducing. Um, 96 hours left, 72 hours left, 48 hours left, 24 hours left, five, four, three, two, one. Like, I mean, even saying this, I'm feeling stressed out. And I guess in this, like, even if implicitly we were all made keenly aware of how much closer we all are to our own deaths. Um, mm -hmm which sometimes like make, makes the the ornaments of our life look sharper. Um, yes. Uh, the, because we become aware of the fact that they're fleeting, like the ocean looks bluer, the, the clouds reflecting from it are more sharp edged. So like the world on the surface, I guess, to us during these kinds of, um, um, I guess, intense and, and tragic countdowns um, feels more consequential, um, you know, like, Everything we see and hear will soon be lost to this world, like me and you and mm -hmm. and the subs and 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 the people inside them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the ways that people dealt with this, and I, I certainly don't want to make it seem like this is you you know unique to this moment because there are newspapers that were making fun of the sinking of the Titanic, mm. like days. Mm after it happened <laughs> and right. weeks and months like it was not it's not just like oh twitter makes everybody evil but this is you know the the rapidity and kind of like um how should i say this kind of the way in which people can kind of take their anxiety deflect with dark humor is has been interesting to watch too i guess you know is that because during the pandemic there really wasn't that gallows humor Right. And here, and here, it's come back in a very powerful way. I guess is it because the the tragedy isn't happening to, happening to you? I would love to hear more about how this relates to the collective trauma of the of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, we we really um, are a species that's always like eschewed empathy. Um, yeah, and 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 yeah. So yeah, because it's not happening happening to us, because it's not happening to our family members, because it happened to a bunch of like rich people who might have been assholes. Um, I mean, yeah. they they. I mean, I, I I still don't think people deserve to die, and that we should cheer that, right? Um, yes. Um, and, and you know, and I come from you know um, a big, loud, argumentative Jewish family. Um, and at funerals, what did what did we do? And when we were sitting shiva afterwards, we roasted the dead. You know, um, I mean, it was how, but we did it from a place of love. Exactly, um, you know, and it's 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 how we coped. Yeah, and you can cope. Like I'm perfectly fine coping with grief by by making jokes about this shit. But the, but a lot of this was just ugly and mean. And I've just had enough of ugliness and meanness. You know, I'm I'm you know not a big fan of these sorts of like you know. Um, income inequalities and you know what what the billionaires had to do to become billionaire you know i'm not i'm not a fan fan of these folks either but i'm also just not 
not a fan of just out and out blanket meanness in the face of of death like this. Yeah, you can um, be a bad, you know, bad people don't deserve to die necessarily. Yeah, I mean, we can see. I'm anti-death penalty. Right, I mean, mean, yeah, maybe they were a bunch of assholes, but like, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It it just, it just feels too easy um, in a way. And I, I guess... I don't know. Maybe there's room for meanness and there's room for nastiness, but I've, I've personally, I've like, I've had enough of that. So like, um, but dark, I think dark humor is okay. And I think, you know, turning this toward like satire in a way in order to illuminate um, some of the policies in not just our country, but in in the world uh, that are made to like support things like um, income inequality and economic mm-hmm. disparity like that. I mean, I mean, using this toward a larger satire and, and making it, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's okay, but some of it was just like ugly and not used toward anything beyond the ugliness. And that's boring. While this international search was going on, there was a fishing boat that sank in the Ionian sea that was carrying, um, you know, between 400 and 70, 750 migrants. Right. Um, at least 82 people have died. 104 of them were rescued. Mm-hmm. And that was not, that is, <laughs> certain countries have made it illegal to do rescues like that. The, the contrast between these, how these two stories are handled is really shocking because that was not the Titans' first journey down there. Right. You know, oh, migrant, migrant ships go down all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, so do these people. Like right. this, this again. This, this really, it, it really makes draws <laughs> the the gruesomeness of how the media operates, especially because the, the, didn't the Coast Guard know that it imploded like when it happened, mm-hmm. and they just were holding the information. Yep, every, I don't, don't want to make it. I don't want to make like a, this is a media conspiracy. The, you know, the <laughs> Illuminati are doing blah blah blah. But right. it is insane. How well, differently do these two things are handled? It's not a conspiracy theory to say that you know that <laughs> the, the news um, is is a, a part of the entertainment industry. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's a fact, and they are beholden to ratings. And what can we turn into a lurid, sexier story? We can't, you know, sexify, uh, you know, this 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 story about a migrant ship going down. Um, but we can, in a weird way, like make this sexy and de- and package it and deliver it in mm-hmm. in in a more lurid way and so um and 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 so there's that and so yeah i mean there's something wrong with us <laughs> yeah because <laughs> like, i mean it's so it's so it's it feels futile to kind of like yell at the tv right or yeah or see people reacting being like oh yeah jordan neely should have been fucking uh had, choked to death because uh, he was being loud on the train and that's mm-hmm. a penalty worth death you know like it's 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 futile to get angry at that stuff and yet also it's yell at the tv all the time (laughs) yes exactly that is upsetting like again you they're they're this i think maybe this is gets to the heart of the conversation there are just certain emotions that you have to let out even if they don't make sense because it's hard to put up with yeah i mean most of my life is comprised of exercises in futility so why not one more I mean, do you, I mean, how, you know, this is, again, this totally out of the blue incident. I mean, how do you feel like this experience, you know, both accepting the assignment, going down, having it be published the same week as this tragedy, the tragedy itself, how do you feel like that will impact your 
book? Or can you say, again, this is so fresh? Yeah, well, (laughs) of course, you know, the story of my dive with Carl will will make it into the book. And and whether I'm (laughs) whether I'm pissed at myself um, for having done it, um, I I suppose now um, I can and, you know, now that I could say I survived it, um, I could say I'm glad I did it. And I'm thankful to, you know, to my editor at at Harper's, um, Katie Ryder, who who suggested it and. You know, I mean, Katie knew Katie, what the where the story was. Um, I mean, Katie's a rock star and and was obviously right to suggest it. And again, I'm happy she did, but but never again um, will I do it. And and of course, like the story that's that's in the magazine is about one third, if not if not less than than the length of the entire draft that I cobbled together. Like I found so much more in doing this. So. So I'll definitely be putting the longer, um, uh, fuller version into the book, uh, breaking it up, I guess. I mean, information I never would have gleaned had Katie not told me the one key thing um, that was missing from the story was me getting my my anxious ass into that sub this past February. I'm also really ruminating um, newly, I guess, and I guess some of this will make it into the book, on, on some of the conceptual stuff that we've been discussing now mm-hmm. today. and. Um, and I think like one of the animating like engagements that'll thread throughout the book will be on this, on this, this dark side of wonder, you know, like, especially of course, as it, as it pertains with our draw to the the deep sea across history Uh, and wondering about what, what the malign side effects of wonder are and can be despite like what its root causes may be, you know, like the consequences of the sort of, uh, intrepid exploration that once seemed to be born of like innocent curiosity. So like in certain cases does wonder if sufficiently chased bump up against tragedy like this or atrocity. And if so, um, examining these sorts of uh, incidents throughout history at what point? Yeah. In the, in the New York times story, Carl describes kind of this, uh, uh, struggle session, let's say, at this, you know, independent, uh, submersible community where everyone was kind of just like yelling at Stockton Rush yeah. and being like, you can't do this. This is terrible. And he just sort of bottled up. I mean, he didn't really have anything to say in, in response. Whatever, you know, again, not making any judgments about that, but it's not nice to have that experience. But how do you feel like this might impact the amateur submersibles community? Yeah, there, there's a lot of discussion. So, like, um, I, I'm a member of the the P subs or the personal submersible um, like Facebook page, and I've been just curious to see what what people are thinking. And a lot of folks are worried um, about how this will impact the so-called experimental uh, sub or the uncertified or uncertifiable sub uh, industry. Because- yeah, can you can you explain why certain things are uncertifiable? It's it, it, yeah. They, I mean, they don't like to say that um, it, it, they're uncertified. Um, I, I think a lot of the folks in the community um, just they just don't like that term because they they also feel like they don't um, given you know what they're doing they don't need to be certified because their endeavors don't necessarily gel with 
the Coast Guards and the, you know, the U.S. Department of Shipping and, and, and governments like strictures that require certification. Um, they don't take enough people down, you know, often enough and things like that. So they found these like loopholes. So they say like, we're not uncertified. Basically, we don't need to be certified. And they're not wrong necessarily, like given yeah. them. And I'm, again, I'm, this is just, they're not beholden to these edicts as they're written um, by these governing bodies. They found ways around them, I guess. Yeah. Um, and in part, you know, Carl operates in Honduras because of that. It's interesting. So like, and I just called this up on, on WhatsApp because Carl sent me that email. So in, in the, uh, in 2019, like the day after um, Carl went down to over 12,000 feet with Rush and, and rang those alarm bells, um, I just kind of like love how Carl sees himself um, and, you know, how he labels himself. And he, he writes to Stockton Rush. He's like, Stockton, I think the main reason I got, I got this opportunity to dive might have the most to do with if there was such a thing as expert in risk assessment in one-off uncertifiable deep sea manned vehicles, my resume is hard to beat. Um, mm. So, so I, I just love all of this kind of like self-classification and all of this and it's a very long email and it goes on and on and gets into the weeds of, of technological things. But um, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be on a sub that dove down to 12,000 because <sighs> 2,000 was enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but also like Carl is right mm. because he's been doing this for so long. Yeah. And again, this is, it's totally valid to be like, yeah, I don't want to build my sub according to some insane regulations that would make it extremely expensive, difficult to use. There are good reasons to push back against these things. But then again, it's like, there are consequences sometimes. I mean, yeah. there are consequences anytime, like I said, anytime you get into any vehicle, walking down the street, there's always a, a sense of danger yeah. there. And, you know, some people, I'm, agoraphobes can't handle it. Uh, lots of other people can't handle it. You know, it's like, it's, it's a part of life. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, the last time we spoke, you said you weren't quite sure what you would do with the feelings of having experienced this, you know, this, there's this timeless pull of the, the seeing the ocean depths of understanding, like seeing this world that is so vastly different from our own and the otherworldly experience of being that deep. I mean, you said you weren't really sure what you were going to do with those feelings. I mean, has it just made it even more confusing or has it kind of sharpened them and, and, and it's like, okay, I had this amazing experience and I never need to have it again. Yeah, I feel that. Like, I feel like pretty certain <laughs> with, re with regard to that. But um, yeah, I also feel like what I'm feeling, like I, I have no place to kind of like put these weird, like it just feels really amorphous. I have nothing to like stitch this like cocktail of feelings to. And so um, sure. I do feel like I've cheated something, but I don't know what that means. And though I'll never do this again, um, again, I, I don't regret having dove and thankfully surviving in that home-built submersible. I mean, like, the dive took me to such a place of like richness and, and astonishment and, and a place that's, yeah, otherworldly, right? But, mm -hmm. um, but also simultaneously like more of this world than, than maybe our, our reductive terrestrial version. And so, yeah. and so what I saw and felt down there was, was so wondrous. Um, but, but also now like in a torturous kind of way, I think about it every day. And 
So from time to time, I get lost. I get foggy, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, like as if still down there with the bioluminescence and the six gill sharks. Um, and, and though I, I, I'll never do this again, I think like, as I, as I mentioned, like when we previously spoke, I can see how it, it can become an addiction. Um, yeah. But now I'm going to attempt to satisfy it instead, you know, by putting on my shoes and going for a walk on the good hard surface of the earth, <laughs> you know, <laughs> watching the goddamn birds. I don't know. So, yeah. so yeah. Thank you for speaking again. You're not a journalist. You've done like reporting, but you're not like trained as a journalist. You're like a writing guy, right? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Insane. Like, it's so insane to be on the news like this. I know it's wild. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm an essayist. I like filter everything, yeah. everything through like my very um, flawed and twitchy human brain. You know, like and you know, yeah. Aspects of journalism are like. Um, it's one component, you know, that I, I kind of employ, you know, in the essay and in the Harper's article, but there, there are other components at play too. So, yeah. so yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I've always been a shitty reporter because I never know what questions to ask. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. Well, thank you. Thanks, Violet. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.